why do we always love when things go to hell? Uh, I, I'm not alone uh, in my love of The Empire Strikes Back. That is the epitome of a story where the second act, everything just goes to hell. So this, what coming up this episode is the beginning of that for our companions. We are sticking with the Dragonlance Chronicles, and this one is the first, uh, the first installment of Dragons of Winter Night. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> uh, you knew I was going to sneak it in sometime. Sometime, yeah. As we know, the last, if you listen to the last uh, episode, or any of the last episodes, uh, the companions, I'm talking about the nine companions who I will not list their names, because we all know who they are, um, they liberated the slaves from Pax Tharkas. They killed Verminard. We had that really amazing dragon-on-dragon action with the two evil dragons. Very hot. It was... <laughs> it was well, literally, it was two yeah. fire-breathing dragons. Yes. <laughs> so, um, very good ending that book. And one thing I wanted, I want to stress in this is the beginning of this series uh, of we're going to do them in four now. Uh, I felt that doing 25% per of the book gives me a little bit more leeway to give more background and more description of what's going on as opposed to just being a summary. I did not want to just do a summary of these books. Anybody can do that. But what I'm going to stress in this, this is the beginning of Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman really coming into their own as writers. It was, I think if you were paying attention, you could feel how good they got in the space of one book over the, over the, the past, over Dragons of Autumn Twilight. And this book is when they really, it's almost, it's, it's almost miraculous how better they become as writers and they weren't bad to begin with. So... Um, this this installment. Every one of the books we have three installments to this: Dragons of Autumn Twilight, Dragons of Winter Night, and Dragons of Spring Dawning. Each one of those titles is a real description of the feel of the book. This book, Dragons of Winter Night, it is a rough one. It's got some really savage parts in it like where it's just absolutely awful and heartbreaking and but yet i think that margaret weiss and trace hickman shine most when they're doing those awful things when they're telling those uh, those awful stories they got a they've got a real talent for melancholy and for tragedy and they're i think their best 
like scenario that they write is joy mixed with with melancholy and tragedy, like that bittersweet. They are so good at that. So the companions are now uh, in between this this book and the last and the last one, Dragons, Water, and Twilight. They had to find this artifact called the Hammer of Karis. The Hammer of Karis is a the little background to this one. Uh, Karis was a dwarf uh, from Thurbarden, and during the civil war that went on between the hill dwarves and the mountain dwarves, uh, he was he was not a noble figure. He was a warrior. His king commanded him at the end to fight dwarf against dwarf, and in his and I should give some background on this character because he's extremely interesting to this part of the book. He was tall for a dwarf. I think I, I think he was over five feet tall. Um, he was a giant. He he was so noble and so amazing that Karis is actually not his real name. Karis was the name the Salamnic Knights gave to, gave to him. It's dwarven. It's Salamnic for knight. So because he was so he has so impressed them with how powerful and also noble and chivalrous he he embodied that Salamnic code and he's not even a human. But he did one of the one of my favorite things that we will get into in the series after this of Dragonlance Legends is that right before he went to have to go out and fight his his kin in this big civil war, he shaved his beard. That is an ultimate act of sorrow and grief is when, when a dwarf shaves his beard. They usually, they'll do it sometimes after a beloved friend or a spouse dies, things like that. And you can tell they're in mourning. He did this before going out for this battle and he was crying and his hammer was this giant beautifully i think that he forged it uh with the help of reorks the the god of the dwarves and it was becomes a very important artifact well in between the last book and this book uh the companions had to engage in a quest to find this thing because it's so important in forging the dragon lances they're going to come up there's actually another great book that details the uh, that struggle from another group of characters' point of view, called Stormblade, is one of the best Dragonlance books ever written, and a fine fantasy book. One of the best I've, one of the best at least in this genre, this fantasy adventure genre I've ever read. So, it was uh, it was about this uh, smith who had forged a king's blade because the hammer of Karis is important to crown a king, uh, a major thane amongst all the other thanes. We'll get into that. This council of, of the leaders of the clans who come and sit at the table, but there is a high, like a high thane, high king above them all. And he has to, there hasn't been one in so long because they couldn't find the hammer of Karis. So they were going to forge a, uh, a, a king's blade, but nobody had been able to forge one. This one dwarf finally did, and there was a whole bunch of, is an excellent book. Uh, uh, we will We will do that one on this show eventually, but for right now, we're back with the companions. So it opens, and they're presenting the Hammer of Karis. Tannis and Sturm are talking, and Sturm is resentful because he wants to take the hammer and forge dragon lances and fight the dragons. He wants to be another Huma, and everybody knows this. We've discussed Huma before, the, the legendary figure who was the Knight of Salamnia who banished the dragons Um he, uh, is uh, there's a legend of human book. We, we, he has a minotaur companion in that one who I love Kaz Kaz, the minotaur 
Great character. I can't wait to get into those. They're not as well written as these. I got to be honest, but they still, they're a lot of fun. But uh, Elistan, since dying of cancer in the last one being healed, has now become a high priest of Paladine. So he is the one presenting the hammer. And it goes, quote, Elistan started to walk down the aisle. Rising to greet him on a dais in the center of the hall was Hornfell, thane of the Hylar dwarves. Space behind the dwarf were seven carved stone thrones, all of them now empty. Hornfell stood before the seventh throne, the most magnificent, magnificent, the throne for the king of Thurbarden. Long empty, it would be occupied once more as Hornfell accepted the hammer of Karis. The return of this ancient relic was a singular triumph for Hornfell. Since his thanedom was now in possession of the coveted hammer, he could unite the rival dwarf thanes under his leadership. It is actually, that is actually a very important moment here. So... This is a, obviously, as we've talked before, a time of great division in Kryn. Like you have, nobody can trust each other because of cataclysm. Everybody pointed fingers at everybody else. The dwarves were were separated amongst lines like that too because they couldn't have a high king. So they, you know, engaged in a lot of assassinations and stuff like that went down. Um, it's just you know the the first part is Sturm and Tannis having this conversation about what's going on. Um, but also what's being discussed is that the refugees from Pax Tharkas, the dwarves have agreed for them to be quartered and live in Thurbarden. But the humans don't want to live underground. They they don't, you know, they're humans. They they don't they can't understand living beneath a mountain. It's just not um it's a very touchy situation they're in because there were a lot of human refugees and it could have come to blows at any point. Um Sturm uh, and Tannis are discussing this, and Sturm, in his bitterness over what's happening to the hammer, quotes uh, a little passage from uh, the this, the tale of Huma. I think it's called Canticle of the Dragon. Quote, And so it was told that the knights took the golden hammer, the hammer blessed by the great god Palatine, and gave it to one of the silver arms so they might forge the dragon lance of Huma, Dragonbane, and gave the hammer to the dwarf they called Karis, or Knight, for his extraordinary valor and honor in battle. And he kept Karis for his name. And their hammer of Karis passed in the dwarven kingdom with assurances from the dwarves that it should be brought forth again at need. Sturm and Tannis now get into an uncharacteristic argument. Uh, they're both strong personalities. Um, Sturm usually defers to Tannis because Tannis is a... Tannis is a good leader, and one of the re- one of the reasons we'll find out. But this this book, another thing I wanted I wanted to stress, this book is a lot about Tannis and Lorana. This is really their book, and it's about Tannis and his the struggle with his duality of nature, his his human side and his elven side, warring with each other, and it's embodied in two different women, Lorana herself and then Kittyara, who we will discuss. Um, Sturm wants to be a hero, but he also is unsure of himself, and we'll get into that too. Um, then out of nowhere, uh, Raceland appears. 
quote, Chirac whispered a voice and a bright light flared, gleaming from a crystal ball, clutching the golden disembodied claw of a dragon atop a plain wooden staff. The light illuminated the red robes of a magic user. The young mage walked, slight, walked toward the two, leaning upon his staff, coughing slightly. The light from his staff shone upon a skeletal face with glistening metallic gold skin drawn tightly over fine bones. His eyes gleamed golden. Raceland is trying to, in his way, ameliorate what's going on between these two. And you might have to <clears throat> define ameliorate, ameliorate for our listeners. Sorry. <laughs> Make things better. Okay. Just do that from now on. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I didn't. I use that word often. I don't, I mean, I've read in so many books that it doesn't occur to me that's not, you know. I don't know that this has the same audience as our other shows, but just assume. Okay. <laughs> Raceland, uh, basically, he shows Sturm a dragon lance. Quote, it was a footman's lance, nearly 12 feet long. The point was made of pure silver, barbed and gleaming. The shaft crafted of polished wood. The tip was steel. This is an illusion, by the way. Designed to be thrust into the ground. It's beautiful, Tannis gasped. What is it? A dragon lance, Raceland answered. Holding the lance in his hand, the, met, the maid stepped between the two, who stood aside to let him pass if unwilling to be touched by him. Their eyes were on the lance. Then Raceland turned out and held it out to Sturm. There is your dragon lance knight, Raceland hissed, without the benefit of the hammer or the silver arm. Will you ride with it into glory, remembering that for Huma, with glory came death? This causes an argument between the two, and we have a nice setup for the rest of the book, is that, you know, they... They don't know what they're going to do now. That was all a big theme in the last one, too. I mean, it's a lot of deciding where to go, what to do. Um, first chapter opens with them, uh, with the humans, with uh, Tannis and the companions, depend, discussing what's going to happen with the dwarves. Um, they don't know if they're going to try to go to Tarsus. You know, is, is which is the is what ultimately turns out to be the plan. Tarsus is this uh, port city. It was beautiful. They called Tarsus the beautiful. You know, not a lot of imagination there. But um, and take decided to take the humans away, or if they're going to basically, they don't know what they're going to do. So, uh. Quote, the Dwarven Thanes, now consolidated under the leadership of Hornfell, were preparing to battle the evil coming from the north. The dwarves did not greatly fear this evil. Their mountain kingdom was imp seen impregnable, and they had kept the promise they had made in Tannis in return for the hammer. The refugees from Pax Tharkas could settle in Southgate, the southernmost part of the mountain kingdom of Thurbarden. Humans, though, not terribly happy with the situation. Quote, they were safe to be sure, but the refugees, mostly farmers, were not happy living underground in the huge Dwarven caverns. In the spring, they could plant crops on the mountainside, but the rocky soil produced only a bare living. The people wanted to live in the sunshine and fresh air. They didn't want to be dependent on the dwarves. Um, Elistan proposes uh, for them to go to Tarsus. Um, in the discussion, the high seekers don't, they don't really listen. They're, they don't believe basically what is going on at this point. There's a lot of denial. Um, Raceland is usually the one to disabuse him of these notions. And he does quote, I repeat, you are fools. The constellation known as the queen of darkness is missing from the sky because the queen is present here upon Kryn, the warrior constellation, which represents the ancient God Paladine as we are told in the disc of Mish Mishakal has also returned to Kryn to fight her. Um, 
that's you know you have a war going on you have all these different factions you know uh trying to decide what to do uh the dragon armies have now invaded it's a real it's a real tough time for everybody and um the dwarves are getting ready to seal off their barden altogether and tanis goes out to look at that south gate which is the giant i always thought this was one of the coolest parts it is a description of the engineering feats of the dwarves the dwarves are not just not just miners and craftsmen they're also fantastic engineers they can uh is a nice description of it quote 60 feet wide at the base and almost half again as high the gate was operated by a huge mechanism that forced it in and out of the mountain at least 40 feet thick in its center the gate was as indestructible as any known on crin except for the one matching it in the north once shut they could not be distinguished from the faces of the mountain such was the craftsmanship of the ancient dwarf masons they can open and close an entire face of a mountain. And we're not talking a, an Appalachian mountain. We're talking something easily as big as one of the Rocky Mountains. Like a mountain mountain. Yeah. It's <laughs> snow-capped. So. Ours were snow-capped a couple weeks ago. Yeah, they and they do get every now and then, but usually not. Um, but then again, also on sea level, it was also snow-capped. So. Right. Um. Tannis is off by himself, and then uh, we have a nice interlude with him, him and Lorana. This is where they. This starts from the beginning. This this back and forth with them. Lorana has grown a lot as a person, and Tannis realizes how much he still loves her. "Quote." Tannis looked down. Oh, sorry. Lorana walks up. Walks up to talk to Tannis. "Quote." How solemn you are, Lorana said to Tannis softly, coming near and putting her hand on his arm. "You believe race is light, don't you?" Tantalus. She was going to call him Tantalus, but decides for his human name. His human name still came clumsily to her lips, yet she knew him well enough now to understand that his elven name only brought him pain. Tannis looked down at the small, slender hand on his arm and gently put his own over it. Only a few months earlier, the touch of that hand would have irritated him, causing confusion and guilt as he wrestled with love for a human woman against what he told himself was a childhood infatuation with this elf maiden. But now the touch of Lorana's hand filled him with warmth and peace, even if it stirred his, as it stirred his blood. They're having a discussion of it's what they're going to do. And, um, hold on a second. um, Tannis and Elistan is now one of the major parts of what they're deciding, what they're going to do. Elistan and Lorana have formed a relationship and Tannis is great. That's one thing I didn't care for in this is that Tannis is sh- sheer jealousy of the relationship that's formed between them two. Although there's nothing romantic between them. Um, I'm sure that Alistair probably wished there were because I mean, she's a beautiful elf maiden. So um, they get into argument over that. And then also over what Raceland said, quote, don't judge race, Lenorana, Tana said harshly, thrusting a torch into a bucket of water. The light vanished with a hiss. Things aren't always black and white, as you elves are inclined to believe. That cut. The mage has served our lives more than once. I've come to rely his thinking, which I admit I find it easier to rely on, on than blind faith. You elves, Lenorana cried, how typically human that sounds. There is more elven in you than you care to admit, Tantalus. You used to say that you didn't wear the beard to hide your heritage, and now I believed you. But now I'm not so certain. I've ridden on, around humans long enough to know how they feel about elves, but I'm, I'm proud of my heritage. You're not. You're ashamed of it. Why? Because that human, human, human love woman you're in love with, sorry, what's her name? Kitty Yara? 
Um, I think that's the first time she's actually really spoken her name. Um, it's a really tough situation with them. You know, she's jealous of her and Tannis is probably equally in love with both of them. So, um, it's just, uh, you know, I, I feel kind of bad for Tannis. Uh, quote, thinking of the journey as he walked, Tannis looked up into the night sky. It was beautiful, glittering with stars, but two gaping black holes marred the beauty, race on his missing constellation, holes in the sky, holes in himself. Um, they start the journey, and it actually starts out to be pretty, you know, it's very easy going. Um, it's cold, but it's nice and bright. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, they can pretend that it's just an outing, I guess. Um, Elistan uh, starts to tell them about the gods because he's been reading these discs and actually turns into a pretty good cleric very quickly. Quote, at night, Elistan explained to them what he was learning of the ancient gods from the discs of Mishakal, which he carried with him. His story filled their souls with peace and reinforced their faith. Even Tannis, who had spent a lifetime searching for something to believe in, and now they had found it, viewed it with skepticism, felt deep in his soul that he could believe in this if he believed in anything. He wanted to believe in it, but something held him back, and every time he looked at Lorana, he knew what it was. Until he could resolve his own inner turmoil, the raging div division between the elven and human inside of him, he would never know peace. Um, I like that part. They, uh, you, I, I really feel that Tannis is... I, I like the fact that he's so vulnerable yet so tough at the same time. He's a really good warrior, but he's also very... Uh, he's not, he doesn't have a lot of faith in himself. Thoughtful. Yeah. And doesn't, I mean, and we find out why, and you find out why all these people follow him. I mean, it might seem strange that all these different people follow somebody who is so conflicted, but the best explanation comes later and you might be surprised who it comes from. Um, if I'm going to have to take a guess, it's Tasselhoff. No. What? Actually, not this time. Where is Tasselhoff, by the way? BT dubs. Where's my boy? Um, <laughs> this is the only reason I come here. I want some hijinks. Um, they, that's, we'll, we'll get to him. Yeah, we will. He's there. <laughs> He's there in the party, but this is just, you know, an opening, and he has a big part to play later on. And it's this, really is, this is like those scenes in Game of Thrones when they're doing the long walks, and it just like focuses on two characters while right. everybody else is around him mouthing things. Yeah, we'll call them exposition walks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is a 10 year journey. We're going to discuss what's going on right now so you know what's going on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody else, you'll hear, you'll hear this in the background. <laughs> I, I love the fact that uh, Diana Rigg, uh, the Queen of Thorns herself, said, If I have to walk through one of these goddamn gardens one more time, <laughs> she was so great. Um, <laughs> so meta. Yeah, she was. Um, Can't wait to do Game of Thrones. Let's go. It's going to be the best. All right. Um, the next chapter is opens with. Uh, I like. I've always liked these chapters. This actual one was from a dragon's point of view. This is from a blue dragon named Sky, and we begin quote. The dragon sighed, flexed his huge wings, and lifted his ponderous body from the warm, soothing waters of the hot springs. Emerging from a billowing cloud of vapor, he braced himself to step into the chill air. The clear winter air stung his del delicate nostrils and bit into his throat. Swallowing painfully, he firmly resisted the temptation to return the warm pools and began to climb to the, hockey the rocky ledge above him. 
The mountain sun lit the mountain peaks, touching the dragon, causing his blue scales to shimmer gold in the clear light, but doing little to warm his blood. The dragon shivered again, stamping his feet upon the chill ground. Winter was not for the blue dragons, which I always found kind of odd. Nor was traveling this abysmal country. With that thought in mind, as he had been in his mind all not, all the long bitter night, Sky looked about for his master. Here we have a, 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 now the introduction of a mysterious dragon, high dragon, high lord. Um, those who are decently good at ferreting things out, well, it came as a surprise to me, I suppose, but it shouldn't have. Um, the picture we're going to put up with this episode, this Dragon High Lord is in the picture. You just have to figure out who it is. I always kind of like that. So, I'm actually going to make the picture right now. Go ahead. Um, it's pretty good. It's a good introduction with, for this character. Quote, he found the Dragon High Lord standing upon an outcropping of rock, an imposing figure in horned dragon helm and blue dragon scale armor. The High Lord, cape whipping in the chill wind, was gazing with tense interest across the great flat pane far below. I like this this interplay between this dragon sky and the High Lord. This dragon actually cares very much uh, about this dragon High Lord. Usually dragons suffer their masters. This dragon really likes his master. Um, they have a discussion now about what's happening with the what happened with Verminard, his failure. I like the fact they both kind of dis- they hated Verminard. They don't like red dragons and their masters in general. Red dragons were probably seen as the real bullies of the, I mean, they're the biggest ones, you know, they're the most powerful blue dragons are smaller. Um, they're much more hive mind oriented. Like, they work well with groups. They work, you know, uh, blue dragons were actually of the evil dragons, probably my favorite. They breathe lightning, which is really fucking cool. Um, they would be the equivalent of the silver dragons on the good side. Um, each, each one of them have a counterpart, as I've discussed. You know, red dragons, it's gold. Blue dragons, it's silver. Green dragons, I think it's bronze. You know, we'll get into that because there's a, you know, a really a lot of really, um, the Dragon High Lord talks about three people he wants or they want uh, found three three people amongst the basically the three people who liberated the people from Pax Dark as is three of the companions. Um, then we get back to uh, the companions have now hit a in their travels hit a big uh, snow patch. Um, I always like this uh, description of Caraman. Um, cause they're all struggling through it, but quote behind star Montanus came Caraman traveling through the snow, like a great bear, his arsenal of weapons clanking around him, carrying his armor and the share of supplies as well. Those of his twin brother Raceland on his back, just watching Caraman made Tannis weary for the big warrior was not only walking through the deep snow with ease, but is also managing to widen the trail for the, for the others behind him. Um, in this party, we have Tannis, Caraman, uh, Gilthanus, Lorana, Flint Tasselhoff and uh, Elistan. Um, Sturm, of course. I think I mentioned Sturm. And then uh, again, at uh, now at the then we have Riverwind and Goldmoon. Quote: Riverwind and Goldmoon walked together behind the Elf Lord. That's uh, Gelthanus. Cloaked in their fur skin capes, the cold was little to the plainsmen. Certainly, the cold was nothing compared to the flame in their hearts. I always thought that was kind of 
ham-fisted, but they had been married only a little over a month, and the deep love and compassion each felt for the other, a self-sacrificing love that has led the world to the discovery of the ancient gods now achieve greater depths so they discover new ways to express it. Basically, they're saying they're having sex. So, because <laughs> they weren't having sex before. It's in the <laughs> um, There's a good description of Elistan here. Elistan is one of those characters that even the writers of Dragonlance didn't care for because he's too good. You know, he doesn't. He, there's nothing worse than a than a character that's just has no edge to him. And Alistair has no edge to him. He's, he's a cleric. He's, you know, he's not a warrior. He doesn't have any conflict inside of him. He's not, you know, but I always felt this was a good description. Quote, Elistan, cleric of Paladin, resplendent in white robes that gleamed even against the snow. White bearded, his hair thinning, he was still an imposing figure. The kind of man who might well attract a young girl. Few men or women could look into Elistan's ice blue eyes and not feel stirred, awed in the presence of one who had walked the realms of death and found a new and stronger faith. Um, Lorana is now really cloister herself with Elistan. She's found, she understands diplomacy and all this stuff that Elistan's struggling to do. He's, he's a cleric, but he's not a politician. She was raised in an elven court. So he's, it's a lot of welcome help from her for him. He, you know, but I, again, I think he probably wishes it's something more, but she's not attracted to him. She really only, that's the odd thing. She Tannis treats her really kind of really bad sometimes, but she doesn't really have eyes for anybody else. So does that grab you? That's awesome. Okay. I like that. Have you, have you ferreted it out who, who that might be in the, in the armor there? I have not. I have not. Um, we'll figure out later. Um, I look forward to it. I like, uh, here we get, well, here's what you came for. We now, we now have a really, um, uh, a description of Flint and, and Tasselhoff, the the uh, the father and his wayward son, basically. He, you know, or grandfather even. Quote: The ancient dwarf came next, bowling along through the snow. The tip of his helm and the tassel from the mane of a griffin, which didn't exist, were all that were visible above the snow. Tannis had tried to tell him that griffins had no manes, that the tassel was horsehair. But Flint, stoutly maintaining that his stoutly maintaining that his hatred of horses stemmed from the fact that they made him sneeze violently, believed none of it. Tannis smiled, shaking his head. Flint had insisted on being at the front of the line. It was only after Caraman had pulled him out of the three three snowdrifts that Flint agreed, grumbling to walk rear guard. <laughs> And of course, with him is Tasselhoff. Quote, Tannis was regaling the dwarf with a marvelous tale by the time he found a woolly mammoth, whatever that was, <laughs> being held by a prisoner by two deranged wizards. He's the fucking best. <laughs> he's, he's, and he gets, he gets a lot of play in this book. Tannis sighed. Taz was getting on his nerves. He had already sternly reprimanded the kinder for hitting Sturm in the head with a snowball. <laughs> But he knew it was useless. Kinder lived for adventure and new experiences. Tad was enjoying every minute of this dismal journey. Um, they have now found Tarsus. They, uh, but far from being a port, uh, they find out that there's no more water anymore. <laughs> the ocean has now receded because of the cataclysm. I always found that a little hard to believe. Because uh, you would think that a city that populous and that important to trade, people would know, like, hey, the ocean's not there anymore. But apparently it wasn't even discussed. This is obviously a fantasy book. 
you know, that's that kind of stuff. Even Wasn't there a, water here, <laughs> but I'm saying that that kind of stuff, even in that kind of climate, word of that is going to travel. Like, like you have, like you'll hear about it and you'll think it's bullshit. Sure, sure. Or you'll get ten different tales about it. That's one thing I loved about uh, Game of Thrones is that in that world you had celebrities. You know, you had tales being told. You, of them. Ne- you never knew what they looked like. You you heard of Jamie Lannister? Sure, you, probably you talk about guy, yeah. Like, well, I mean, no. All, what they know is he's the handsomest man in Westeros and all that stuff. The fact that he's rich didn't really hurt that. Um, always, but uh, I like this part. You actually get a, a, a really nice uh, description of what Tarsus was. Before and this is a long passage, but I, I believe it's important and it's just one of the more well-written parts of the book. Quote: Three hundred years ago, Tarsus the Beautiful was Lord City of the lands of Abyssinia. Ab- Ab- I always felt that very difficult to pronounce. From here, set to sail the wing, white-winged ships for all the known lands of Kryn. Here they returned, bearing all manner of objects, precious and curious, hideous and delicate. The Tarsian marketplace was a thing of wonder. Sailors swagger the streets, their golden earrings flashing as brightly as their knives. The ships brought exotic people from distant lands to sell their wares. Some dressed in gaily colored flowing silks bedizened. I think it should be bedazzled with jewels. They sold spices and teas, oranges and pearls, and bright colored birds in cages. Others dressed in crude skin sold luxuriant furs from strange animals as grotesque as those who hunted them. Of course, there were buyers of the Tarsian market at well. As well, almost as strange and exotic and dangerous as the sellers. Wizards dressed in robes of white, red, or black strode the bazaars, searching for rare spell components to make their magic. Distrusted even them, they walked through the crowds, isolated and alone. Few spoke to even those wearing the white robes, and no one ever cheated them. Clerics, too, sought ingredients for the healing potions. For there were clerics in Korean before the cataclysm. Some worshipped the gods of good, some the gods of neutrality, some the gods of evil. All had great power. Their, praise for, their prayers for good or evil were answered. And always walking among all the strange and exotic people, peoples gathering in the bazaar of Tarsus the Beautiful were the Knights of Salamnia. I love this part, this book. This book really gets into the knighthood. And I think you're going to love it, because I think you like Sturm. Um, Keeping order, guarding the land, living their disciplined lives in strict, strict observance of the code and the measure. The code and the measure you hear that discussed is the the chivalry code of knighthood. Um, it's both a, a description of what you're supposed to do to the letter and also how you're supposed to embrace it, embrace it in spirit. Stern Breitblade is the living example of the code and the measure. He lives his life exactly as a knife should, as a knight should. He's such a great character. I really love him. The knights were followers of Paladine and were noted for their pious obedience to the gods. The walled city of Tarsus had its own army, and so it was said, had never fallen to an invading force. The city was ruled under the watchful eyes of the knights by a lord family and had the good fortune to fall to the care of a family possessing sense, sensitivity, and justice. Tarsus became a center of learning. Sages from all lands lands all around came here to share their wisdom schools and a great library were established temples were built to the gods young men and women eager for knowledge came to tarsus i know this is a long quote but i felt this was really good Uh, the early dragon wars had not affected tarsus the huge walled city its formidable army its fleets of white-winged ships and its vigilant knights of salamnia daunted even the queen of darkness before she can consolidate her power and strike the Lord City, Huma drove her dragons from the skies. Thus, Tarsus prospered and became, during the Age of Might, one of the wealthiest and proudest cities of Kryn. 
And as with so many other cities in Kryn, with its pride grew its conceit. Tarsus began seeking more and more from the gods, wealth, power, glory. The people who worshipped the people worshipped the king priest of Istar, who, seeing suffering in the land, demanded of the gods in his arrogance that what they had granted human in humility. Even the knights of Salamnia, bound by strict by the strict laws of the measure, in case a religion that had become all ritual with little depth, fell into the swear of the mighty king priest. We'll discuss him later. He's an interesting character. Um, think a pope who basically says that he's got God in his pocket and he can do whatever he wants. Then you've got the king priest of Istar. Sounds like a bad dude. He, yes and no. They came to a point where they were starting to put out these edicts of the, of the king priest. One of them was he wanted to wipe out all the evil races. He was, he, elves and humans were fine. Kinder was seen as a nuisance, of course, but dwarves were not trusted, you know, and then you, you they just wanted to wipe out, like have a true uh, annihilation of goblins, ogres, all these other ogres, by the way, would have been fucked. <laughs> I think I'd be considered an ogre. <laughs> well, I'll give you a description of ogre. I don't think you could pull. I don't think any of us could pull that one off. They're gigantic. They're like eight, ten feet tall. Um, quote, then came the cataclysm, a night of terror. When it rained fire, the ground heaved and cracked as the gods in the righteous anger hurled a mountain of rock upon Kryn, punishing the king priest of Istar and the people for their pride. That's when the that's when the knights lost their their power and the position became reviled. Um, you know, it was just um, they blamed them. I mean, it, it, they, they were even an easy group to blame. You didn't protect us. You didn't. You had turned away from the gods, and this is your fault. Even though the king priest of Istar, it's is it's his fault. The whole thing's his fault. And I always, you know, as we've discussed before, there's another continent. I always felt it was really unfair that yes, Ancelon got it bad. They got like a couple of smaller meteor strikes that really did a lot of damage. One of them created a, a, a the, where where Tarsus was now is a, the Blood Sea, and it basically just knocked it into the into the ocean, and all the sediment that got stirred up by it keeps that part of the ocean red. Um, Talidus on the other on the other side of the world got one massive strike right in the center of the continent, and it, now it's got a giant ocean of of lava in the center of the continent. It's really cool. Like it's a really cool concept. I always felt like, wait a second, this wasn't their fault, and they got it worse, you know. So, um, the companions have now come into Tarsus, and they're going to, uh, they're coming to the city. Um, <laughs> Flint is, of course, is mad at Tasselhoff because it was Tasselhoff's map that brought him there. So uh, <laughs> he's. He's easily pissed off when it comes to Tasselhoff. He says, quote, this is what comes of trusting a kinder's map, said the dwarf irritably, shoving away his empty plate and wiping his hand across his mouth. Takes us to a seaport with no sea. And, you know, they're having a discussion about that. Um, that's when they, when uh, Tasselhoff becomes bored and a bored kinder is, is dangerous to him and to himself and to his friends. So he just kind of slips out of the red dragon in where they're, we're all having palaver about what they're going to do. Quote, Tasselhoff took this opportunity to leave the table very quietly. Everyone was focused on the argument between the knight, the half elf and the magic user. Uh, you know, of course the usual, the usual suspects in the argument. 
Tessafoss skipped out of the front door of the Red Dragon, a name he found particularly funny, but Tannis had not laughed. Taz thought about that as he walked along, looking at the new sights in delight. Tannis didn't laugh at anything anymore. The half-elf was certainly carrying around the weight of the world on his shoulders, it seemed. Tassahoff suspected he knew what was wrong with Tannis. The kinder took a ring out of one of his pouches and studied it. The ring was golden, of elven make, carved in the form of clinging ivy leaves. He had picked it up in Qualanesti. This time, the elf was not something the kinder had acquired. It had been thrown at his feet by the heartbroken Lorana after Tannis had returned it to her. Um... It goes, it flashes back to the end where they're still trying to discuss what they're going to do. Um, they, of course, Tars is not having water. Now they're stuck. They don't, you know, they can't take a ship. So they're discussing whether to go back to Tharbarden, Tharbarden, whether to, um, to, uh, you know, just what the hell they're going to do because they really have no plan at this point. Um, but Tasselhoff, of course, is a nice narrative plot, a nice narrative device, and one of the movers and shakers in the whole series. So, you know, what happens next is kind of inevitable. Quote Tannis listened. Yes, he'd been right. He could hear now, clearly now, the shrill, high pitched, screaming whine of the leather sling on the end of Taz's hoopack staff. It was a peculiar sound produced by the kinder swinging the sling in a circle over his head and raised the hair on the back of the neck. It was also a kinder single for danger. He's in trouble. Um, Hold on. There's guards coming. Basically, Tasselhoff is there's guards coming to investigate him. Um, nobody trusts anybody, so um, the innkeepers disappeared. Um, Sturm, Tannis, and Gelfinus decide to go check things out and see what they can do. Um, I always liked. They were going to try to leave uh, Flint behind, and he was going to tell him to stay, and Flint just refused that out of hand because he loves Tannis. That's his son. Quote, I'm staying with you, the, tan- the dwarf stated firmly. Tannis smiled and put his hand on Flint's shoulder. Of course, old friend, I didn't think you needed telling. Um, they give him their weapons because they don't want any trouble. Um, the worst one was, of course, with Sturm had to hand over his father's sword. So, um I like the description of that. Quote, Sturm frowned. His antique two-handed sword and his scabbard were the only legacy he had left of his father, a great knight of Slamnia, who had vanished after sending his wife and the young son into exile. Slowly, Sturm unbuckled his sword belt and handed it to Caraman. And Caraman says, I'll guard it. You know, he's... Caraman understands. He may not be as, as like, a knight like Sturm, but he knows how important the weapon is to him so he really takes it with reverence i always like that the fact that caraman caraman is such a good character like i he's so lovable he's a beast like he's absolutely a monster and you know can he's just a big old he's a big teddy bear is what he is until you make him mad and then he can just twist, twist your head right off your shoulders um then as they're leaving we get a a pretty ominous thing with raceland um something raceland says Quote, I know, Sturm said, smiling sadly about the sword. They would take care of it. He glanced up at Raceland, who was standing on the, on the stairs. Remember, there's always the great worm Caterpillius to protect it, isn't there, mage? Raceland started this unexpected remember of a time in the burned-out city of Solace when he had tricked some hobgoblins into believing Sturm's sword was, sword was cursed. It was the closest to an expression of gratitude that the knight had ever made to the mage. Raceland smiled briefly. Yes, he whispered, there is always the worm. Do not fear, knight. Your weapon is, is safe, as are the lives of those who leave in our care. If any are safe... 
Farewell, my friends, he hissed, his strange hourglass gleaming, and the long farewell will be. Some of us are not destined again to meet in, again in this world. With that, he bowed and gathering his red robes around and began to climb the stairs. It's pretty ominous. Um, hold on one second. I have to tell everybody that if you hear a long pause, I, I, I'm just going to level with you. I had done uh, a two pages of extensive notes about where I was going to go. And I, in typical Charles Keenan fashion, if anybody you know me, you're laughing right now. That is so me. So that is, you think you scooped them up and threw them away? Probably. It's very on brand. It's, me. yeah. I mean, I'd be surprised if you didn't lose them. Yeah. Um, we're going to fix it for next time. You're, you're going to tattoo all the information <laughs> on your forearm. Um, the constable, uh, now is now it says he's going to take him into custody and like question him. Um, quote, the five companions, of the kinder grinning with excitement, followed the constable out of the building. As they walked into the street, Tannis caught sight of movement at an upstairs window. Looking up, he saw Lorana watching her face drawn with fear. I always, always felt this part was really sad. She raised her hand. He saw her lips form the words, I'm sorry, and Elvin. Raceland's words came to his mind and he felt chilled. His heart ached. The thought that he might never see her again made the world seem suddenly bleak and empty and desolate. He realized that what Lorana had come to mean to him in these last few dark months, and even when hope had died, as he saw the evil armies of the Dragon High Lords overrun the land. Her steadfast faith, her courage, her unfailing, undying hope. How different from Kittyara. Uh, the, the five, Gilthanus, Tannis, Tasselhoff, Flint, and Sturm, are basically going to, I, I suppose take the fall for whatever's going on. Um, Sturm, especially some real West Memphis three shit going on here. Right. <laughs> yeah. Kind of. Yes. Um, they're being marched to the streets and that doesn't bode well for the people of Tarsus. They Sturm wears his armor openly. Knights do not wear their armor openly in Tarsus anymore because of, and really much of anywhere in Crin at this point or and so on anywhere. There are no Knights of Salamnia in Talitus. Um, Duh. <laughs> I don't even think there are even any knights period in Talitus, which is weird. We'll discuss that one day. How there there is a series of books set in Talitus that are very good. We will do those, uh, but not for a while yet. Um, but as they're marching through the street, you get to see how the people of Tarsus feel about knights. Quote, foul knight, a rock struck Sturm on the shoulder. The knight flinched, though the stone could have caused him little pain through his armor. Tannis, looking at his pale face and quivering mustache, knew the pain was deeper than a weapon could inflict. Sturm lives his life to help other people. He lives his life to be a knight. To have somebody attack him just for nothing, for who he is, is really... Um, really hurts his feelings you know he's he's a very melancholy guy stern bright blade is a a wonderful character but his melancholy is so pervasive i would think that he's probably a, a bipolar no not bipolar because he never gets excited maybe just a little bit of depression he's got a lot of depression like his his life was hard and his he's seen some things he's seen a lot of things like in other books you actually get to see um there's actually one event that i don't know if i want to dis discuss on this because it's a spoiler but anyway um as they're being thrown stuff thrown at them and stuff though, because there was Sturm, this thing happens with Kinder. Kinder have a thing called uh, the taunt, where they they can work themselves up to a frenzy and start insulting people. 
And Tasselhoff is particularly susceptible to it or good at it, however you want to see it. Just start doing some Don Rickles, you hockey puck. Yeah. <laughs> he, some of those. Um, we'll get into that. Quote, Besides being quite casual in respect to other people's property, kinders have another unendearing characteristic known as the taunt. All kinders possess this talent to a greater or lesser degree. It is how their diminutive race has managed to thrive and survive in a world of knights and warriors, trolls and hobgoblins. The taunt is the ability to insult an enemy and work him into such a fever pitch of rage that he loses his head and begins fighting wildly and erratically. Taz was a master of the taunt. Though he rarely found a need to use it when traveling with his warrior friends. You would never do this to a friend. But Taz decided to take full advantage of the opportunity. He began to shout insults back. Tannis has realized this and is starting to freak out because he knows what's coming. Quote, such insults as foul knight and elven scum lacked imagination, Taz felt. He decided to show these people exactly how much range and scope for variety were <laughs> available in the common language. Tashoff's insults were, were masterpieces of creativity and ingenuity. Unfortunately, it also tended to be extremely personal, occasionally rather crude, delivering with an air of charming innocence. Is that your nose or disease? Can those freeze, fleas crawling on your body do tricks? With your mother a gully dwarf, we're the only beginning. Matters went rapidly downhill from there. Um, this is start to really stir the crowd up. Um, Tannis, Tannis tries to reach Tasselhoff. He's getting ready to say something else, so I wish you would have finished this one because he says, quote, Hey, Constable, you know what you could do with that whistle? You could then... Um, somebody picks uh, Tasselhoff up and pulls him out of the crowd. Um, they get separated. Um, then this, of course, that drives Flint crazy because he's he's Tasselhoff's dad. Basically, he sees himself as you know a really paternalistic figure. So, um, uh, Sturm is beside himself and with worry, but also with anger. You know, um, then they get taken into the uh, it's the uh, basically a, a jail where they're gonna um. They're going to talk to uh, the lord of the city. Um, it's he's actually not a, not a bad man. Uh, I think he's just put into this position. Um, there to get charged with inciting a riot, which I don't know. That can go either way. They were getting attacked first, but Tasselhoff kind of. Um, but one thing they notice as they come in is that somebody somebody standing behind the Lord as like a, you know, the typical dark counselor is a draconian. So it turns out that Tarsus is controlled by the dragon armies. Um, I, then we cut back to the other companions back in the Red Dragon Inn. Um, they're all, of course, worried. Um, there's a nice part here with Tika. They really start to develop Tika in this uh again she's so much character development in this uh in this part of in this part of the series. Like this is when the characters really come into their own and stop being so they were never really too one dimensional in the in the last book, but now you really start to they flesh them out and it's really I I've always just loved this book. Quote the young barmaid had received a great deal of practice in fighting on their journey south to find the harem of Karis, and though she would never be truly skilled with a sword, she had developed shield bashing into an art. She wore her armor casually now, 
It was still mismatched, but she kept adding to it scrounging pieces left on battlefields. The sunlight glinted on her red chainmail vest, glistening in her red hair. Caraman's face was animated and relaxed as he talked with the young woman. They did not touch, not with the golden eyes of Caraman's twin on them, but they leaned very near each other. This is where the real romance between Caraman and Tika has really started to um, really pick up. Um, later on, that becomes a very... It's such a beautiful relationship between them. It goes through quite a trial though in the next in the series of books the three books after this series of three i don't know if we're going to go right into those after this i would i think i'd prefer to do the death gate cycle next um same authors but you know a little bit of change of pace is there a uh you said there's a book between this and then the next one well actually there's a book between this one and dragons of autumn twilight but is it is it in order or is it like a sub subsequential like a well, it's Dragons of Autumn Twilight, Stormblade, Dragons okay. of Winter Night. So we could do Stormblade next. Well, no, after we do this one, that might not make any sense. But anyway. Um, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, another thing discussed now is uh, Raceland's powers really started to grow. Um, he's now got the spellbook of Fist and Dantilus, and he's actually really able to start studying it. And he's really growing in power very quickly. Um We'll see more of that soon. Raceland, he, again, he's so unlikable, but his ambition and his, especially, you know, it's no secret that eventually he's going to fight Fist and Dantilus, like I, like I mentioned before. That is an epic magic battle, you know. It, like, destroys half a half of a tower and all kinds of stuff, and there's a really great painting by Keith Parkinson, one of my favorites, where Raceland is holding a candelabra to get himself up and he's getting ready to cast a spell and fist and Antoine is over there getting ready to cast his and you know it's whoever can get the spell off first you know that's the thing about you know with these magic users and wizards is that it's kind of like a gunfight you know who can get the spell out first who's quicker at getting who's quicker on the draw you know to get it off and who's powerful enough to accept it and deal with you know um one thing that happened here though is something i didn't um Nobody expected Lorana gets interested in Raceland, not in that way, but is fascinated by elves are fascinated by humans in in general because their lives are so short and the ones that are truly ambitious, they feel like they have to pack so much in, in their lives. Elves can study magic, especially the white robes because they have so much time and they become truly powerful after a while, but they are amazed how human beings are generally, I would think more powerful than elven men, but just because they don't have as much time, so they have to get everything in, and they're so driven by it. Elves, by their very nature, are not very driven by anything because they don't have to be. Um, one of those is in, there's an exception to one of those who's coming up uh, later on, who I love, a character we've discussed, Dalimar the Dark. We'll get into him. He's a great character. Um, but anyway, great name, yeah. It's and he's a he's a really cool character. I've always I always liked him. Um, but uh, Raceland is sitting, uh, looking out into the street. Looking, stroking the cover of uh, Fist and Dantilus' spellbook, and Lorana gets interested and comes out to sit, uh, talk to him. Quote, what do you see when you look far away like that? She asked softly, sitting down next to him, feeling a sudden weakness of fear sweep over her. What do I see? He repeated softly. There was great pain and sadness in his voice, not the bitterness she was accustomed to hearing. I see times it affects all things. Human flesh withers and dies before my eyes. Flowers bloom only to fade. Trees drop green leaves never to regain them. In my sight, it is always winter, always night. That is 
heavy. That's heavy, but it's also that's a, P, a part where Peter Griffin would say, hey, he said the thing and the thing. Dragons <laughs> of winter night. So always winter, always. Night. Uh, they said it. <laughs> <laughs> it's Charlie's Angels, too. <laughs> anyway, um, full throttle. Let's just go full throttle. Uh, she asked him about the the. His test in the Tower of High Swords, he's forbidden to, forbidden to speak of it. Nobody can speak of it. Um, I don't know if they're magically bound to not talk about it. I think they probably are because that's the biggest insurance policy. But what I think what happened to him, and it is what happened to him, was especially, was, you know, especially horrendous. Um, even, the, even the wizards who ran the test felt badly about it. They're like, man, we really took a lot from him, shattered his health, did that to him, you know. Um, but Raceland, Lorana is a young elf maid, so she is so untouched by time that I like this part that he can't, that what happens with his eyes doesn't happen to her. Quote, Raceland leaned forward almost unconsciously, his hand stretching out, trembling to touch the wondrous hair that seemed possessed of a life of its own. So vibrant, luxuriant was it. Then, seeing before his eyes his own dying flesh, he withdrew his hand quickly and sank back in his chair, a bitter smile on his face. For what Lorana did not know, could not know, was that in looking at her, Raceland saw the only beauty he would ever see in his lifetime. Young, by elven standards, she was untouched by death or decay, even in the mage's, mage's cursed vision. That's pretty powerful stuff. Um, she's... Lorana, I don't know if she was trying to pump him for information to begin with here, but she, she knows that he's been traveling with Tannis a long time. Um, they start to discuss though uh, his race one and Karaman's mother and by extension um, Kitty Ara and uh, because of course Lorana is curious about this woman who's captured Tannis this human woman has captured Tannis's heart you have to you have you would have to think that Lorana knows how pretty she is so they always know, especially somebody who's essentially immortal and is a princess of an of an elven people. Yeah, she's probably pretty, pretty convinced of her own beauty. Yeah. She's not arrogant and never was. She's a great character and she's very lovable. But she has to wonder, this is me. I, I, any man in this world would want me, but he wants this human woman. She, he, she's curious about her. So um, race when. Lays out uh, her basically his family, which includes Kitiara. Um, quote The first man she married was a handsome warrior from the Northland. This is talking about his mother. Their passion died within months, and after that, they made life miserable for each other. My mother was fragile of health and given to slipping into strange trances from which she might not wake for hours. They were poor, living off what her husband could earn with his sword. Though he was clearly of noble blood, he never spoke of his family. I do not believe he even told her his real name. Um, then he mentions he told Kitty Ara though is what she says. Um, Lorana doesn't like hearing the voice, but she wants to know. She she has to know. She's so curious. It's like if you see your ex with somebody, you want to know what kind of person they are. Um, quote: She is my elder half sister, older than Caramon. Caramon and I by about eight years. She is very much like her father, I believe. As beautiful as he was handsome, right, resolute and impetuous, warlike, strong and fearless. Um. That's not a very very big description, but it's a, it's a beginning. Um, then they go into the fact that Raceland's and Caraman's mother slipped into a trance one day and did not recover. 
She, Kitayara, one of the one of the first, they say one of the first struggles. Kitayara says one of the first struggles she ever fought was Rayson was a baby and he was not doing well, so she nursed him back to health because her mother was not able to do it. She said the first the first fight, first person she fought was death, and she won. So, um. Then uh, Raceland begins to go into um, what Kitayar was like, um, that she was a warrior, that she learned how to sell her sword and how their life was in solace. You know, all the it's 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 very, you know, there's books about it and there are, there are good books about it. Um, Kitayar is a very interesting character. I liked her, but in in all honesty, she's not very likable. Um, but that's not really her fault. Um Always, there was a good part though about how the the, the beginning of the companions and uh, how they all met, and this is coming from Raisel, of course. Quote: There were Stern, Bright Blade, already dreaming of knighthood. The Kinder, Tannis, Caraman, and I. We traveled with Flint before he retired from metalsmithing. The roads grew so dangerous that Flint gave up traveling, and and by this time we had all learned as much as we could from our friends. We were growing restless. It was time to separate. Tannis said. Um. I think it's when they made the pact to come back together and saw us after they could figure out what was going on in the world. Um, Kitty R and Sturm traveled together for a while and that created something interesting later on. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I want to get into that one. That's uh, that's a uh, story for another day. Um, it's a very big development, but anyway, um, then we have finally, um, we have finally have a discussion about why they follow Tannis. Um, Lorana wants to know, and Raceland basically gives it to her. Quote, we, he has the qualities we are told are essential for leadership. He is quick thinking, intelligent, creative. But most of us possess these in greater or lesser degree. Why are the others fall with Tannis? Sturm is of noble blood, member of an ancient order whose roots go back to ancient times. Why does he obey a bastard half-elf? And Riverwind, he distrusts all who are not human and half who are. Yet he and Goldmoon both fall with Tannis to the abyss and back. Why? Tannis listens to his feelings. He does not suppress them as does the knight or hide them as does the plainsman. Tannis realizes that sometimes a leader must think with his head, with his heart and not his head. Raceland glanced at her. Remember that. I always felt that was a extremely good interchange between two characters who would have nothing in common. Um, hold on one second. Then the... Uh, Hold on a second. Here's one of the things I don't like about this book is when I'm trying to get through not having my notes is that sometimes when it, the way it's printed, there's no gap in between one group of characters and the narrative of another group of characters. So I have to figure out where I'm at. Um, we're back to um, the Lord interrogating Tannis, Sturm, Flint, an absent Tasselhoff and Gilthanus. Um one of the the constable suggests that they are he's saying you're well trained basically he's at he's he's stating what they are he said you're well trained you're armed all this stuff and the constable suggests they're mercenaries um that of course pisses Sturm off uh he stands up um Quote, we are not mercenary, Sturm said, coming to stand before the bench, his bearing proud and noble. We came out of the northern plains of Abyssinia. 
We freed 800 men, women, and children from the Dragon High Lord Vermin our impacts Tharkas. Fleeing the wrath of the dragon armies, we left the people hidden in a valley in the mountains and traveled south, hoping to find ships in the legendary city of Tarsus. We did not know it was landlocked, or we would not have bothered. Um, the Lord is impressed. He didn't think anybody could make it through Thurbarden. Um, then, though, uh, we have the entrance of another character, and it's a very important character. Um, quote, suddenly the doors banged open and two guards strode in, strode in roughly dragging a prisoner between them. They thrust, thrust the companions aside as they flung the prisoner to the floor. The prisoner was a woman. Heavily veiled, she was dressed in long skirts and a heavy cape. She lay for a moment on the floor as if too tired and defeated to rise. Then seeming to make a supreme effort of will, she started to push herself up. Obviously, no one was going to assist her. The Lord stared at her, his face grim and scowling. The draconian, draconian behind him, remember we have got that draconian back there, uh, had risen to its feet and was looking down at her with interest. The woman struggled, entangled in her cape and her long flowing skirts. Um, of course, Sturm can't let that can't let that stand. He gets he's gonna help her even though they tell him not to. Quote, kill me if you will, the knight said to the guard, but I'm going to the aid of the lady. Um when she talks, Tannis and Gelthinus look at each other, they hear something that the others don't hear. It's an elven accent. This is an elf woman. Um Turns out this is uh, her name is Alana Starbreeze. She is the basically the princess of the king of Selvanesti. She is as noble as noble elf gets. So, quote. Elana Tannis said, memories coming back to him. The elven people were split hundreds of years before when Kithcana led many of the elves to the land of Quelanesti following the bitter Kinslayer Wars. But the elven leaders still kept in contact in the mysterious manner of elf lords who, it was said, can read messages in the wind and speak the language of the silver moon. Now you remember now, Elana, of all elf maidens reputed to be the most beautiful and distant as a silver moon that showed on her birth. Um, they're going to arrest her because she was trying to they say recruit mercenaries in the city. Um, and really no basis to the charges. She was just trying to find help because we're getting ready to find out what's going on in Sylvanesti and it ain't good. It is certainly not good. Um, but in the struggle, she has dropped something. Uh, Quote, I beg a, fav- a favor, Sir Knight, she said to Sturm. I seem to have dropped something, a trifle but precious. Could you look? Sturm knelt swiftly and immediately saw the object where it lay, sparking on the floor, hidden by the folds of her dress. It was a pin shaped like a star glittering with diamonds. He drew in his breath. A trifle, his value must be incalculable. No matter what she did not want, it found by these worthless guards. Quickly, he wrapped his fingers around it, then feigned to look about. Finally, still kneeling, he looked up at the woman. This is a real... This 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 reminds me. Okay, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna mince any words or, you know, it's no spoiler. It's it was bound to happen. Alana and Sturm are so very much alike. Um, both come from a proud, very kind of stiff group of people. Both very good. Like they, you know, they're 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 definitely on the side of good. Um, very noble. Very, you know. She gets on my nerves kind of because she's such a xenophobe, like all of her people and all that stuff. But the the kindred spirits speak to each other, and you've got a in in Lord of the Rings we had uh, the the lay of Baron and Luthien, and I've 
not read that book in so long, and I can't forget the the specifics. It is a elf lady that fell in love with a human, and it's rife with tragedy. That's what we've got now here, is that it was inevitable these two characters were going to find each other in this series. Quote, Sturm caught his breath as the woman removed the hood of her cloak and drew the veil from her face. For the first time, human eyes looked upon the face of Alana Starbreeze. Remember, I told you the Sylvanesti elves are uh, do not leave their kingdom ever, really, and they don't allow other people to come in. So she's never seen a human before, or a human has never seen her, let's put it that way. Quote, Merlassa, the elves called her princess of the night, her hair black and soft as the night wind, was held in place by a net as fine as cobweb, twinkling with, twinkling with tiny jewels like stars. Her skin was the pale hue of the silver moon, her eyes the deep dark purple of the night sky, and her lips the color of the red moon, red moon shadows. The first, night's first thought was to give thanks to Paladin that he was already on his knees. His second thought was that death would be a paltry price to pay to serve her. And his third, he must say something, but he seemed to have forgotten the words of any known language. Sturm is immediately falling in love with her, basically. Somebody sees this as Tannis, and he said, out of all the things they have to face now, he thinks this is one of the worst. Quote, Tannis had seen Alana's face and felt his own heart stir with her beauty, but he had seen Sturm's face as well. He had seen that beauty enter the knight's heart, doing more damage than a goblin's poisoned arrow tip. For this love must turn to poison, he knew. The Sylvanesti were a proud and haughty race. Fearing contamination and loss of their way of life, they refused to have even the slightest contact with humans. Thus the Kinslayer Wars had been fought. No, Tannis thought sadly, the Silver Moon itself was not higher or further out of Sturm's reach. Half outside, this was all they needed. Um, this this part opens one of the, the best parts of, of, of and uh, something that endures in the rest of the series for a long time. Um, it is tragedy. This is when they, again, Weiss and Hickman are great tragedy. And this is one of the biggest tragedies that these two people immediately fall in love and, the, and it just can't be, you know, it, it just cannot be a, she lives for a thousand years. He lives for 80 at best. And they both know this. Um, Plus, their peoples couldn't be any more different. Her father is the king of Sylvanesti. There's no way he would allow his daughter to even consider, you know, seeing a human. You know, it's just it's it's really it's tragic stuff. Makes for great makes for great drama and all that stuff, but it's still pretty pretty sad. Um, they're being escorted out of the uh, out by the constable, and then suddenly, um, two hooded cloaked figures attack the attack the guards. Um, and these, uh, turns out, uh, quote, but one of the hooded men turned to Sturm, his hands raised in the air. I'm not going to bother to try to say what they say, but it's in Salamnic. These two guys are Salamnic knights. Um, they're disguised Salamnic knights. Um, they take them into the old part of Tarsus that, was just a crumbling ruin after the destruction of the cataclysm, but um, it's still beautiful. It's just beautiful in that abandoned kind of eerie haunted way. Quote, Tannis leaning against the building looked around with interest. What remained standing of the buildings on the street was impressive, much more beautiful than the modern city. He saw that the hearts of the beautiful must have deserved its name before the cataclysm. Now nothing but huge blocks of granite lay tumbled about. Vast courtyards were choked and overgrown with weeds. 
turned around by the biting, biting winter winds. Um, we have a formal introduction between uh, Alana and Tannis and Gilthanus. She, li- she might know Gilthanus, I think, because he's noble too. And even though the two kingdoms don't have direct contact with each other, they would definitely know of each other. Um, so here's that introduction. Quote, Atlanta star breeze, Tannis half-elven, Gilthanus said, Tannis lived among the quail nesty for many years. He is the son of my uncle's wife. Alana drew back the veil from her face and regarded Tannis coldly. The son of my uncle's wife was a polite way of saying Tannis was illegitimate. Otherwise, Gilthanus would have introduced him as the son of my uncle. I like that. I like that little detail there that that's the way the elves that backhanded formality that's supposed to be polite, but it turns out is not, you know, it's, you know, it's like watching something like dangerous liaisons or something like that, where they are for, or even the best example is game of Thrones. When these noble people are forced to be around each other and they hate each other. So they have to insult each other with the same time of being polite. Gilthanus wasn't quite trying to do that because he still loved Tannis. He, he didn't, think he was proper for Lorana, but he still loved him, you know, in in a strange way. The half-elf flushed, the old pain returning forcibly, hurting as much now as it had 50 years before. He wondered if he would ever be free of it. Scratching his beard, Tannis said harshly, my mother was raped by human warriors during the years of darkness following the cataclysm. Speaker kindly took me in following her death and raised me as his own. She doesn't Jesus. react well to this. Quote, Atlanta's dark eyes grew darker until they would pull some night. She raised her eyebrows. Do you need, need to apologize? Do you see a need to apologize for your heritage? She asked in a chill voice. No, Tana stammers, his face burning. Then do not, she said, and turned away from him to Gilthanus. That's pretty dismissive. You asked me why I came to Tarsus. I came seeking aid. I must return to Selenastia to search for my father. Um. Then she goes on to tell him that uh, the evil that is coming to, in the quail nest, we discussed that, the whole sad part where they had to leave the, leave the city and turning out the lamps and all this stuff. It's now come to Sylvanesti. But I would dare say that the Sylvanesti would beg for what happened to them, uh, for beg, beg for what happened to quail Nesty to happen to them as opposed to what actually happened. Um, we will get to that. And it's, uh, it's pretty rough. Um, she left the city because she was trying to uh, find help. Um, she was arrested, of course, because the dragon already control Tarsus, um, and they were probably going to execute her eventually. Um, then she, the but it turns out the knights have found the ancient library. Um, the, these knights of Slamnia found this ancient library in the old part of Tarsus. Um, we get the introduction of these. Uh, there's three of them, actually. Um, quote, Sturm jested for the knights to come forward. This is Brian Donner, Knight of the Sword. Pretty common name, isn't it? Uh, Aaron Talbo, that's a great name, Knight of the Crown. And Derek Crownguard, Knight of the Rose. The knights bound. The knights bowed. Um, I should tell you, uh, the the he, introdu- he introduced them in this order on purpose. The knight knights of the sword are the lowest rank of Salamic knights. Uh, knights of the crown are above them and knights of the rose are the highest. And they're only allowed to be knights of the rose. If you are of pure Salamic blood, if you know, it's, it's basically an old boys club. Um, the way it should be. <laughs> um, this is another part uh, where we get to see the, this immediate blossoming love between 
these two, uh, Alana and Sturm, quote, accept my heartfelt gratitude for rescuing me, Alana said coolly. Her, her gaze encompassed all the group, but lingered longest on Sturm. Then she turned to Derek, whom she knew from his order of the rose to be the leader. Have you discovered the records of the council set you to find? Um, turns out, <laughs> uh, all of you Tasselhoff fans, this is going to be another great part. He's Tasselhoff is in this library and he's got these glasses that he picked up in Thurbard <laughs> that can translate anything. And he just thought, that, I think he just thought they were kind of cool. So he just popped them into a pouch. He kind of went about his business. There's somebody walking around there. You can't see shit. <laughs> right. No, I mean, they're, they're to read things in other languages, like they're magical. So, um, uh, we have, Tannis reacting to this once they're told that he's doing this. Quote, Tannis's mouth gaped open. Tasselhoff, he repeated incredulously, he can barely read common. He doesn't know any ancient languages. The only one among us who might possibly be able to translate an ancient language is Raceland. Derek shrugged. The kinder has a pair of glasses. He says are magical glasses of true seeing. He put them on the, and has been able to read the book. It says, I can imagine what it says, Tannis snapped. Stories about automatons and magic rings of teleporting and plants that live off air. Where is he? I'm going to have a little talk with Tasselhoff perfect. <laughs> Um, I always the parts with Tasselhoff are always great. I mean, because you've got some heavy stuff going on here, man. You've got a doomed love. You've got uh, you know a, descri- a, a ominous description of what's going on in the Elven Kingdom. You've got you know hidden knights because they're not allowed to be revealed, and you've got Tasselhoff Burfoot in the mix, and he just sometimes they bring along with just the right time, and I always liked it. Quote. The companions descended the stairs rapidly and soon found themselves inside a huge room. Tannis caught his breath, and even Alana's eyes went widened in the flickering torchlight. The gigantic room was filled from ceiling to floor with tall wooden shelves stretching as far as the eye could see. On the shelves were books, books of all kinds, books with leather bindings, books bound in wood, books bound in what looked like leaves from some exotic tree. Men were not all bound at all, but were simply sheaves of parchment held together with black ribbons. Several shelves were toppled over, spilling the books to the floor until it was ankle-deep in parchment. Um... Sitting in amongst all this is Tasselhoff. Tannis immediately just cuts right to the chase. Quote, all right, Taz, Tannis said. Where did you get them? Get what? Did Kendra ask innocently. He saw Tannis' eyes near and put his hand to the small wire rim glasses he's wearing these things. Oh, uh, these? I had them in a pouch. And, well, if you must know, I found them in the Dwarven Kingdom. Flint groaned and put his hand over his face. They were just lying on a table, Taz protested, seeing Tannis scowl. Honest, there was no one around. I thought perhaps someone had misplaced them. I only took them for safekeeping. Good thing, too. Some thief might have come along and stolen them. <laughs> fucking love this guy <laughs> and they're very valuable i meant to return them but after what that we were so busy what with fighting dark dwarves and draconian draconians and finding a hammer that i sort of forgot i had them when i remembered them we were miles away from the dwarves on our way to tarsus and i didn't think you want me back just returning some of course tannis um tannis cut that short he he knew he's gonna he, and the thing about it is uh, uh, the thing that makes him so lovable he's not lying He's not lying. To him, that's the truth. He's a true kleptomaniac. And the fact that he just picked something up, thought it was cool, and just kind of absentmindedly stuck him in a pouch. That's a kinder in a nutshell. They are not thieves. Like we've discussed before, to call a kinder a thief is a grave insult. So um, he's just a rascal. A real rascal and real lovable. He's probably one of the most loved, beloved characters in all of this level of fantasy. If they were ever going to make a show or a movie about him, he would be 
There is a Dungeons and Dragons movie coming. It's not it. Chris it's, Pine. It's not going to be Dragonlance, though. No. Dra- uh, Joe Manganiello loves Dragonlance and was trying to get, he was actually trying to crowd, what do you, crowdfund? Crowdfund, crowdfund a, a Dragonlance movie and he was going to play Sturm. That's a great choice to play Sturm, by the way. Big, handsome, yeah. werewolf bastard. Yeah, absolutely. And he'd be, and he can also pull off real melancholy. So, um, of course, Tannis asked him what's going on. Quote, they're wonderful, Tannis said hastily, relieved that Tannis wasn't going to yell at him. I left him lying on a map one day. Taz patted his map case. I looked down, what do you suppose? I could read the writing on the map through the glasses. Now, that, that doesn't sound very wonderful, Taz said hurriedly, hurriedly, seeing Tannis start to frown again. But this was a map written in a language I'd never been able to understand before. So I tried them on all my maps, and I could read them, Tannis, every one, even the real, real old ones. And you never mentioned this to us, Storm glared. Well, the subject never came up, Taz said apologetically. <laughs> now, if you'd asked me directly, Tassahoff, do you have a pair of magical seeing glasses? I would have told you the truth straight off. But you never did, Storm Blight, so don't look at me like that. Anyway, I can read this old book. Let me tell you what. Um, <laughs> <laughs> then we get another uh, interchange where he actually told Raceland. And um, this is what Raceland said. Um if you read one of the spell books, he said, if I touch the spell books or even look them sideways, he turned to me a cricket and swallow me whole. Tess Hoff stammered. He looked at Tannis with wide eyes. I believed him too. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's now we get into one of the parts of through, through these magical glasses of truth scene where the first mention of this, uh, artifact called a dragon orb is mentioned. Dragon orbs are very important. um, uh, quote, old Tannis, it's so interesting, Tass said. Th- thankfully, the ordeal was over. He Kelford turned a page, and easy, 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 even as he did so, it split and cracked beneath his small fingers. He shook his head sadly. That happens almost every time. But you can see here, the others leaned around to stare beneath the kinder's finger. Pictures of dragons. Blue dragons, red dragons, black dragons, green dragons. I didn't know there were so many. Now, see this thing? He turned another page. Well, oops. Well, you can't see it now, but it was a huge ball of glass. And so the book says, if you have one of these glass balls, you can gain control of the dragons, and they'll do what you say. Um, it turns important. out, turns out that, uh, Raceland had told him about dragon orbs, had told Tassahoff, you know, before had said something about him. Um, then they all, they're still talking. Then they, uh, of course, then something happens. And then this happens. Quote, Tannis felt his hands grow cold. The dry, bitter taste of fear fell his mouth. Now he could hear in the distance the sound of hundreds of horns braying, horns all of them had heard before, the bellowing brass horns that heralded the approach of the dragon armies, draconian armies, and the approach of dragons, the horns of death. Um, now we get into, I, re- I remember reading this part, and it is one of the most cinematic things. Again, I was talking about how much their writing had improved over such a brief period. I can already tell. Yeah, I mean it's it's much more like especially characterizations and you know dialogue. They're they're great great dialogue writers, um, especially with Tasselhoff. Like and, and you know that whole thing there about the glasses was as entertaining <laughs> as anything in the last <laughs> one that we went over. Right. Yeah, I love that part. Um, The companions, the the ones that were, you know, the companions that were out, the five are now rushing back toward the end. Quote, the companions has just reached the marketplace when the first flight of dragons struck Tarsus. Um, the knights wanted to take Tasselhoff and go um, 
go back to where you know go back to Salamnia or do something along those lines and here's a part a part that i really thought really made me like sturm that much more quote i cannot stir i cannot serve sturm with pied laying his hand on tannis's arm he is my leader and my first loyalty is to my friends derek's voice was cold with anger if that is your decision he answered i cannot stop you but this is a black mark against black mark against you sturm brightblade remember that you're not a knight not yet pray that i'm not there when the question of your knighthood comes before the council um even tannis didn't know that he didn't know that sturm was not officially a knight sturm is not officially a knight uh there's all kinds of things you have to go through hoops you have to jump through he's done none of them um because he didn't really have an opportunity him his mother had to flee with him for, to flee salabnia i think his father was killed um and left a sword for his son so it's pretty astonishing um Um, the Lord that we discussed that was going to, uh, when they were talking to them about what, what was going to happen to them after they were arrested and stuff is, is shocked by these dragon arms advancing. Apparently they'd worked out a deal. Um, the draconian who was behind his shoulder now tells him that's not so quote the dragon high lord grew weary of negotiation the draconian said stifling a yawn and the city will be spared after it's been taught a lesson of course quote outside the red dragons were visible in the skies hundreds of them flying in regimented groups of three to five their wings glistened flame red in the setting sun that is just a beautiful beautiful description the people of Tarsus knew one thing and no one thing only death flew overhead as the dragon swooped low making their first passes over the town the dragon feared flow from them spreading panic more deadly than fire the people had one thought in their minds of the shadows the wings blotting out the da- dying light of day escape but there was no escape after the first pass knowing they would meet no resistance the dragon struck one after the other they circled then dropped from the sky like red hot shot their fiery breath engulfing building after building with flame the spreading fires created their own windstorms choking smoke filled the street turning twilight into midnight ash poured down like black rain screams of terror changed to screams of agony as people died in the blazing abyss that was tarsus and as the dragon struck a sea of fear crazed humanity surged through the flame lit streets few had any clear idea of what they were doing of where they were going some shouted they would be safe in the hills, others down by the old waterfront. Still others tried to reach the city gates. Above them flew the dragons, burning at their discretion, killing at their leisure. The companions are, um, you know, being buffeted and, you know, all this chaos going on. They're just trying to get to the Red Dragon Inn. Quote, the heat was so intense that whole buildings blew apart. Tennis caught Gelfinus as the elf was hurled into the side of a building. Holding on to him, the half-elf could only watch helplessly as the rest of his friends were swept away by the mob. Um... We get a part two here where uh, more of the almost the star cross, not stark, not a little, almost literally star cross thing between uh, Alana and Sturm. Um, quote Sturm caught a hold of Alana in his strong arms, half carrying, half dragging her through the death filled streets. Peering through the ash, he tried to see the others, but it was hopeless. And then he began the most desperate battle he had ever fought, striving to keep his feet and support Alana as time and again the dreadful waves of panic broke over them. Then Alana was ripped from his arms by the shrieking mob whose booted feet trampled all that lived. Sturm flung himself into the crowd, shoving and bashing with his armored arms and body, and caught Alana's wrists. Deathly pale, she was shaking with fright. She hung onto his hands with all her strength, and finally he was able to pull her close. A shatter swept 
swept over them. A dragon, screaming cruelly, bore down upon the street that heaved and surged with men, women, and children. Sturm ducked into the door into a doorway, dragging Alana with him, and she her, her with his body as the dragon swooped low overhead. Flame filled the street. The screams of the dying were heart-rending. Don't look, Sturm whispered to Alana pressing her tight her against him tears storming down his face the dragon passed and suddenly the streets were horribly unbearably still nothing moved you know as i said this is very cinematic i mean i i hope you guys are getting from my description this just chaos you know reigning in this in the in these streets and all the you know i i felt that i felt like if this was made into a movie or a show, this would be one of those moments that just would really get people, you know, it's one of those moments where you think, man, somebody, especially the, it's the game of Thrones effect. Who is going to die now? Because somebody's going to die in all this stuff. Quote, Alana rested her head against Stern's chest. The ancient old fashioned armor felt cool against her skin. It's hard metal surface was re- reassuring. And beneath it, she could feel his heartbeat steady, steady, Rapid, steady, and soothing. The arms that held her were strong, hard, well-muscled. His hand stroked her black hair. Alana, chaste maiden of a stern and rigid people, had long known when, where, and whom she would marry. He was an elf lord, and it was a mark of their understanding that, in all the years since this had been arranged, about, they had never touched. He had stayed behind with the people, while Alana returned to find her father. She had strayed into this world of humans, and her senses reeled from the shock. She detested them, yet was fascinated by them. They were so powerful, and their emotions raw and untamed. And just when she thought she would hate and despise them for Forever, one stepped apart from the others. Alana looked up in Sturm's grieved face and saw the etch there pride, nobility, strict, inflexible discipline, constant striving for perf- perfection, perfection unattainable, and thus the deep sorrow in his eyes. Alana felt herself drawn to this man, this human. Yielding to his strength, comforted by his presence, she felt a sweet, searing warmth steal over her. Suddenly she realized she was in more danger from this fire than from the fire of a thousand dragons. Um, she pulls away from him then. Um, she knows she's falling in love with him so she's just trying to get away from him um, she refuses him his feelings are hurt but he, he tries to give her it's called a star jewel the thing he picked up and he tries to give it back to her quote the elf maid stared at the jewel for an instant then she began to shake her eyes lifted to Sturm's eyes and she saw in them not scorn as she expected but compassion once more she wondered she wondered to humans alana dropped her head unable to meet his gaze and took his hand in hers then she laid the jewel in his palm and closed his fingers over it keep this she said softly when you look at it think of alana star raise and know that somewhere she thinks of you sudden tears flooded the knight's eyes he bowed his head unable to speak then kissing the gem he placed it carefully back into his belt and reached out his hands but alana drew back into the doorway her pale, pale face averted please go she said Sturm stood for a moment irresolute, but he could not in armor, in honor, refuse to obey her request. The knight turned and plunged into a nightmarish street. Alana watched him from the doorway for a moment, a protective shell harding around her. Forgive me, Sturm, she whispered herself. Then she stopped. No, do not forgive me, she said harshly. Thank me. She knows what it would be if they pursued anything. Um, then we go back to the other companions in the... Uh, the red dragon and of course they know what's going on because how could they not um they're arguing about what to do whether they should go out whether they should try to uh you know bunker in or whatever um in this discussion instead of being taken alive uh Raceland has an idea um 
because Riverwind has basically well they remember what they did to the Quishu and they remember how bad how bad it is to be caught alive by them so Riverwind has basically voiced the the unvoiceable concern that he basically touches his knife we all know what he's talking about you know let's just finish it you know basically I think he says he's going to do it for all of them he's probably the most skilled at something like that just to kill you really quick you know so you won't feel anything then Raceland speaks up quote there will be no need for that, Raceland said softly. I have herbs. A tiny bit in a glass of wine, very quick, painless. Are you certain, Riverwind asked? Trust me, Raceland said. I'm skilled in the art, the art of herb lore. He amended smoothly, seeing the plainsman shudder. If I am alive, Raceland said softly, I will not give her, them, the drink myself. If not, I will, he said, I will. Uh, I understand. You may trust me, the mage repeated. What about Lorana, Caraman asked. You know, she won't. Leave it to me, Raceland repeated softly. Um... Raceland, though, is not going to die this way. Um, and neither is Caraman. Quote, I will die fighting Raceland, Caraman said to Raceland, trying to speak in a matter-of-fact tone. After the first few words, though, the big warrior's voice broke. Promise me, Raced, you'll take this stuff if I'm not there. There will be no need, no need Raceland said simply. I have not the strength to survive a battle of this magnitude. I will die within my magic. Um, I always thought that was really cool with the fact that, you know, brothers are going to die together, you know, in... Something about a, you know, a noble end where you, where you go down swinging. That's a really cool thing. Um, back out to the street with Tannis and Gelfinus. Um, they see the end of the course of under, is under attack. Um, I think that the, that Draconian probably told the Dragon High Lords what's going on, and now they're there to collect. Um, Gelfinus is, is, you know, goes to Tannis and we have to get him out of there. Um, then a very sad part happens. Um, quote, turning to look, he saw Flint gesturing wildly. Tennis dashed across the street. Was it, what is it? He asked, why aren't you with the others? A half elf stopped. Oh no. He whispered the dwarf, his face smudged with ashen streaked with tears knelt beside Tasselhoff. The kinder was pinned beneath a beam, a beam that had fallen in the street. Taz's face, looking like the face of a wise, wise child, was ashen, his skin clammy. Blasted, rattlebrained kinder's flint moaned, had to go and let a house fall on him. The dwarf's hands were torn and bleeding from trying to lift a beam that would take three men or one caraman to get off the kinder. Tannis put his hand to Taz's, Taz's neck. The life beat was very weak. Stay with him, Tannis said unnecessarily. I'm going to the inn. I'll bring Caraman. Flint Grant looked up the grim, up at him grimly, then glanced over at the inn. Both could hear the yells of the Draconians, seeing their weapons flash in the glare of the firelight. Occasionally, an unnatural light flared from the inn, Raceland's magic. I always thought that was like a really cool image, seeing those Draconians going in and hearing Raceland's spells, killing so many of them, you know what I mean? The dwarf shook his head. He knew Tannis was about about as capable of returning with Caraman as he was of flying. But Flint managed to smile. Sure, lad. I'll stay with him. Farewell, Tannis. Tannis swallowed, tried to answer, then gave him a run down the street. That's touching. You know, Flint. He's strong. All dwarves are strong, but he's just, you know, he couldn't pick up that beam. And he just, he kept doing it. It was tearing his hands apart, and he's bleeding all over the place because he, because Tasselhoff is pinned. So, um, 
Then we go back into the end. Quote, Raceland coughing until he could barely stand, white blood from his lips and drew a small black leather pouch from the innermost pockets of his robes. He had just one spell left and barely, barely enough energy to cast it. Now, his hands shaking with fatigue, he tried to scatter the contents of the little pouch into a pitcher of wine he had ordered Caramon to bring him before the battle started. But his hand trembled violently and his coughing spasms doubled him over. Um, basically, um, he pulls out those herbs and he tells Lorana because she asks what it is. What is this? And he said, well, it'll, it'll make us them think we're dead, you know? So we have 50, 50 shot. They're going to do something or not, you know? So, um, I like this, uh, Lorana's really started to grow at this point. Uh, you really start to like her, not least because she's really starting to be hardened to battle. Quote, Lorana glanced at him and shivered that race one that is. Absently, she wiped bloodstained fingers on her leather armor. The blood did not come off, but she didn't notice. An arrow thudded next to her. She didn't even start, just stared at it dully. They're all, I mean, this is pretty hopeless stuff, man. They're all wounded. Um, now they're now they're breaking down the front door. Riverwind's told him to go in the back. Um, then Tannis has managed to sneak in uh, like one of the holes. Um, it's a pretty tearful reunion. Uh, quote, Tannis, Lorana cried, sheathing her weapon, she ran toward him. Lorana, he breathed, catching her in his arms, he held her close, nearly sobbing in his relief. Then Caraman flung his huge, huge arms around both of them. He's such a such a lovable fella. Um, of course, it takes Raceland to take the, I mean, they're all discussing what they're going to do, and Raceland is, a, he's, he's the realist. Quote, welcome, Tannis, Raceland whispered, coughing, you have come in time to die with us. Um. Let's see. Then uh, they think they're going to, they might be able to get out in all the confusion. That's not to be. Quote, there was a screaming whine and a boom. The inn, three stories tall and built of stone and wood, shook as if it were made of sand and sticks. The air exploded with dust and debris. Flames erupted outside. Above them, they could hear the sound of wood splitting and breaking the thud of falling timber. The building began to collapse in upon itself. Um. Tannis tries to, he's like, he's telling him to get out. Um, he does, of course, what you'd think he'd do, what, what you think he'd do. Quote, gripping Lorana around the waist, Tannis flung her as far from him as he could and saw Elistan standing near the front of the uncatcher in his arms. As a huge beam above Tannis gave way with a shuddering snap, he heard the mage shriek, shriek strange words, and it was falling, falling into darkness, and it seemed the world fell on top of him. Um. See what's the only bad thing I think uh, sometimes in the in the series is remembering who's where, you know. Um, Tannis, Caraman, Raceland. Um, trying to remember who else. Tika, Riverwind, and Goldmoon. I think are inside the inn still. Um, Lorana has now been thrown outside, and Alistair, Alistair and Kester Sturm is outside. Um, Quote, Sturm rounded a corner to see the end of the red dragon collapse in a cloud of flame and smoke as a dragon soared in the sky above it. The knight's heart beat wildly with grief and fear. He ducked into a doorway, hiding in the shadows as some draconians passed him, laughing and talking in their cold guttural language. Apparently, they assumed this job was finished and were seeking other amusement. Three others, he noticed, dressed in blue uniforms, not red, appeared extremely upset at the end's destruction, shaking their fists at the red dragon overhead. Um, that's where you get to see, 
you know, there's different dragon armies, the red and the blue, uh, blue dragons, of course, being in the blue dragon army, red, of course. Um, <laughs> also you get to, uh, he sees Elistan, Storm sees Elistan coming out of the end, basically carrying someone. Um, then that he just runs toward the, runs toward the attack. Quote, the draconian swords drawn ran toward the cleric calling out common for him surrender storm yelled the challenge of a slamnic knight to an enemy and ran out from his doorway the draconians whirled about considerably disconcerted to see the knight storm became dimly aware that another figure was running with him glancing to his side he saw the flash of firelight off a metal helm and heard the dwarf roaring then from a from a doorway he heard the words of magic guiltiness is now casting a spell always kind of like that you flint's an old man but he's getting ready to get in the thick of it that's you know uh, I always like that. Uh, Lorana um, is the one that, uh, that Elliston is carrying. Um, she's dazed. Um, then beneath the rubble, uh, Sturm finds a sword. He finds Tannis' sword, finds really most of their weapons. Um, then they know they're going to have to get out of there. This, the inn has collapsed. Um they all think he's dead. You know, they all think that everybody's in debt, dead in there. You know, that's of course going to crush Lorana. Um, then, uh, Storm asked where Taz is quote, the door's face fell pinned under her beam. He said his force gray, his face gray with grief and sorrow. He clutched his, ha- his hair wildly, knocking off his helmet. I've got to get back to him, but I can't leave them. Caraman, the dwarf began to cry, tears streaming in his beard. That big dumb ox. I need him. He can't do this to me. And Tannis too. Dwarf swore. Damn it. I need them. Um, they're all just in disbelief. You know, Flint, he's torn. Tasselhoff Tannis, what does he do? You know, and he doesn't think that anybody's strong enough besides Karen to pick this thing up. Maybe if they work together, but I, I still know Karen is an awful strong guy. Um, Lorana is freaks out. She thinks Tannis is dead, of course. Um, quote, Lorana screamed a terrifying, pitiful sound that pierced Sturm like a spear. Turning, he caught hold of her just as she started to rush into the debris. Lorana, he cried, look at that. Look at it. He shook, her, he shook her in his own anguish. Nothing could be alive in there. You don't know that, she screamed at him in fury, tearing away from his grasp. Falling on her hands and knees, she tried to lift one of the blackened stones. Tannis, she cried. The stone was so heavy, she could only move it a few inches. Then Elistan basically steps forward and tells her, you know, there's, they're dead. There's nothing you can do. We got to get out of here. Um, quote, Tannis gave his life for you, Lorana. Don't let it be a needless sacrifice. Lorana stared up at him, her face black with soot and filled strict with streak with tears and blood. She heard the horns. She heard Gilthanus calling. She heard Flint shouting something about Tasselhoff dying. She heard it. Elistan's words. And then the rain began dripping from the sky. So the heat of the dragon fire melted the snow, changing it to water. The skin, this rain down, ran, rain down her face, cooling her feverish skin. She basically, this is when she says, she just says, farewell, Tantalus, she whispered. The rain increased, pouring down gently as if it was the gods themselves wept for Tarsus the Beautiful. Um, You know, that was a pretty good, I thought that was a really good part. You know, as a man, as I said before, they're their best when they're telling something terrible. You know, the companions getting separated. You know, um, that's where they really uh, distinguish themselves in this, I will say, this level of fantasy. Fantasy comes in so many different varieties. You have, on one end, you have George R. R. Martin uh, 
Ted Williams, Tolkien, even Tolkien is in his own kind of, of course, his own kind of league. I would consider George R. R. Martin, Ted Williams better than Tolkien. Um, I don't think many people would agree, would disagree with me, uh, but they're what's known as high fantasy. This, the epic thousand page books with, you know, so much history and all that stuff behind it. Usually written for more adult readers. Then you have, you know, in this vein with Dragonlance Chronicles, you have things like the Forgotten Realms with, you know, we'll get into R.A. Salvatore with Dritt Stewart and the elf, Dark Elf Ranger and all that stuff. Those are great books. They're a lot of fun. I wouldn't consider them high fantasy. It's more fantasy adventure. There's not not a lot of heavy existential going on stuff going on there. You know, the drama is kind of ramped down because all the characters are so superhuman. You know, that's fun sometimes, but sometimes not. Dragonlance is, I would put it almost with George R. R. Martin and Ted Williams. I mean, at times they're just as good and for different reasons. You know, this passage right here, the destruction of Tarsus is as good as anything I've ever read. So, um, but back to uh, now we're back inside the inn. Quote, water dripped on his head. It was irritating, cold. Raceland tried to roll over out of the way of the water, but he couldn't move. There was a heavy weight pressing down on top of him. Panicking, he tried desperately to escape. As fear surged through his body, he came fully to consciousness. With knowledge, panic vanished. Raceland was in control once more, and as he had been taught, he forced himself to relax and study the situation. They've gone, they've fallen into the cellar of the Red Dragon Inn. Uh, well, I can't move is because Raceland's laying on top of him because he, I mean, Caraman's laying on top of him because he was trying to save him. Um, he, he, I think at this point he has a, he like says he's such a fool, but he loves his brother. Deep down, Raceland loves his brother and he knows that he would do anything for him. So he's annoyed with him, but he's also touched. Um, and we get a basically a reconstruction of what happened. Quote, he remembered the bean splitting and Tannis throwing the Rana out from under it. He remembered casting a spell, the last one he had strength enough to manage. The magic coursed through his body, creating around him and those near him a force capable of shielding them from physical objects. He remembered Caraman hurling himself on top of him, the building collapsing around them and a falling sensation. Ah, Raceland understood. We must have crashed the floor into the end cellar. Groping around the stone floor, this mage suddenly realized he was soaked through. Finally, however, he found what he'd been searching for, the Staff of Magius. Its crystal was unbroken. Only Dragonfire could damage the staff given by Parsalion. That's the Parsalion. That's the uh, the head of the White Robes in the Towers of High Sorcery. Um, quote, the mage flashed a right around, light around the floor. There were Tannis, Riverwind, Goldmoon, and Tika, all huddered in the caraman. They seemed all right, he thought, giving them a quick inspection. Around them lay scattered debris. Half of the beam slanted down through the rubble to rest on the stone floor. Raceland smiled. A nice bit of work, that spell. Once more, they were in his debt. Um, he wakes Tannis up. Tannis, of course, asks what happened to Lorana. He said, you threw it, threw her to be, you threw her to safety. Um, you know. I'm sure he was happy about that. Quote, beneath the ruins of the Red Dragon Inn, the companions took stock of their situation. It did not look hopeful. Goldmoon treated their injuries, which were not serious, thanks to Raceland's spell. But they had no idea how long they had been unconscious or what was happening above them. Worse still, they had no idea how they could escape. They're pretty much stuck here. So, um, we have a moment here where you, you start to like Raceland again because he saved them and all kind of stuff. 
Tika seems to be kind of a target for him. I'm sure it's jealousy because he knows how much Caraman admires her, you know. So she suggests shouting for help. Quote, and drag, add draconians to the list then, uh, Raceland snapped. They're the only creatures up there liable to hear you. Tika's face flushed and she brushed her hand quickly across her eyes. Cameron cast a reproachful, reproachful glance at his brother, then put his arm around Tika and held her close. Raceland gave them both a look of disgust. Um, then they hear uh, some goblins being told to dig, dig whatever's out of the uh, at the bottom of the inn. Um, they hear sounds of scraping. Uh, of course, there's an exposition discussion going on between two of the a couple of the villains. Um, quote, what are we looking for in this rubble? Croaked a goblin in its goblin tongue. Silver, jewels, Tannis and Caraman, who spoke a little goblin. You know, strained to hear. Nah, said the first goblin who grumbled about orders. Spies are some such wanted by the dragon high lord. Hmm. Um, it's that mysterious dragon high lord that we discussed. Um. They, and then they, they, the companions know that it's only going to be a matter of time before they get to them. And it's, again, going to be another fight to the death, probably. Quote, Riverwind quietly lifted the, his sword out of the water and began wiping it dry. Caraman, his usually cheerful face somber, released Tika and found his sword. Tannis didn't have a sword. Riverwind tossed him his dagger. Tika started to draw a sword, but Tannis shook his head. They would be fighting in close quarters, and Tika needed lots of room. The half-elf looked questioningly at Raceland. The maid shook his head. I will try, Tannis, he whispered. I'm tired, very tired, and I can't think. I can't concentrate. He bowed his head, shaking, shivering violently in his wet robes. He was earning all his effort not to cough and give them away, muffling his choking, his choking in his sleeve. Basically, you know, they know it's only a matter of time. Um, then some, they, they hear a commotion, quote, and above the noise of the shrieking goblins rose a clear, loud, clear, high-pitched call, which was answered by another call farther away. It was like the call of an eagle soaring above the plains at sunset, but this call was right above them. Then there was a scream, a draconian, then a rending sound as if the body of the creature were being ripped apart. More screams, a clash of steel being drawn, another call, and another answer, this one much nearer. What is that, Carolyn asked as I want. It isn't a dragon. It sounds like some gigantic bird of prey. Um, then something else starts to dig. Uh, <laughs> through the rubble. Quote, suddenly there was a rending crash. Stone and rubble, mortar and timber clattered down around them. They scrambled for cover as a huge clawed foot plunged through the debris, its talons gleaming in the light of Raceland's staff. Then it just, quote, helplessly seeking shelter beneath broken beams around the castle veil. The companions watched and wonder as the gigantic claw extricated itself from the rubble and withdrew, leaving behind a wide gaping hole. Just kind of sitting there. You know, nothing happens after that. Um, they're trying to decide what they do. I mean, it's, it seems to be out of the frying pan and in the fire here. So, quote, Tannis, feeling naked without a sword, came over to stand beneath the hole, gazing upward. Then, to his amazement, a dark figure appeared above them, silhouetted against the burning sky. Behind the figure towered a large beast. They could make out the head of a gigantic eagle, its eyes glittering in the firelight, its wickedly curved beak gleaming in the flames. We meet again, Tannis Half-Elf, instead of voices cool, as cool and pure as distant as the stars. It's a lot of star breeze. Um, Atlanta Starbreeze has gone and called some griffins, basically, to <laughs> P-tier griffin. Damn it! Um, 
we have the beginning of the next chapter. Um, one of those, uh, another one of those uh, parts from Dragon's point of view. Two red dragons are are basically conversing. Um, uh, one of the dragons, a red dragon, is trying to do something. A dragon High Lord tells him to stop. Normally, this dragon would would not listen to such things, but then we get a description. Quote. This dragon high lord, although heavily cloaked and dressed in the shining mask and dragon scale of the arm of the ha- armor of the high lords, was human to judge by the race, not hobgoblin. But where did this high lord come from, and why? For for to the red dragon's amazement, he saw that the high lord, high lord rode upon a huge blue dragon and was tended by several flights of blues. Um. What is your bidding, High Lord? The Red asked sternly. And by what right do you stop us, you who have no business in this part of Kryn? The fate of mankind is my business, whether it be in this part of Kryn or another, Dragon High Lord returned. And the might of my sword arm gives me all the right I need to command you, Gallant Red. I thought that was kind of stilted. As for my bidding, I ask that you capture these pitiful humans. Do not kill them. They are wanted for questioning. Bring them to me. You will be well rewarded. Then the dragons see griffins. Um... The, the dragon high lord says that these people cannot be killed. They don't want. It's not dead or alive. He, she, or he wants them captured. I kind of revealed something there. Um, the blue dragons are going to chase, you know, chase these griffins now. And I like this. What this red dragon says at the end. Shouldn't we give chase as well? Asked the female red. This is a female and a red dragon speaking to each other. No, the male repod, red male repod thoughtfully. His fiery eyes on the figure of the dragon high lord dwindling in the distance. I will not cross that one. So, I, I don't know if I want to spoil this. Uh, it will become fairly obvious who this dragon high lord is later. But okay, I'll, I'll keep the secret. Um, then. Uh, we cut to Tannis to the companions are now gotten on the Griffins have been flying off. They got kind of a, a little bit of distance from the city. And, uh, we have discussion between Alana and Tannis, which I always like because, uh, there's so much enmity between the Quell and Essie and Sylvan as only, as only strong as can be in a family. Like they really don't like what each other are and get so exasperated with each other. And Tana said something I think is very, uh, very telling. Quote, someday the elves will wake up and find they are members of, the vast fam- of a vast family, Tana said, his voice shaking with anger. No longer can they be treated as a spoiled elder child who has given everything while the rest of us wait for the crumbs. What gifts we received from the gods we earned, you humans and half-humans, the scorn in her voice cut like a dagger, have these same gifts and threw them away in your greed for more. We are capable of fighting for our own survival without your help, and to your survi- as to your survival, that matters little to us. She's asking them to help her now go to Selvanesti and find Lorak as her father. Um, uh, they've just landed right outside of Tarsus, but then uh, Alana sees dragons following them. Quote, Tannis could never afterward clearly remember the nightmare flight from Tarsus. It was hours of chill biting wind that made even death by a dragon's flaming breath seem appealing. It was hours of panic staring behind them to see the dark shapes gaining on them, staring till his eyes watered and the tears froze on his cheeks and uh, yet unable to turn away. It was stopping at dusk, worn out from fear and fatigue to sleep in a cave on a high rock. Few living creatures cannot fly the eagle-winged gr- dr- griffin, but the dragons, blue dragons, the first they had ever seen, were always on the horizon, always pursuing, allowing no rest during the day, forcing the companions into hiding at night when the exhausted griffins must sleep. 
Um, they actually, and then Raceland and Tannis have a discussion um, about the dragon orbs. Um, Alana says they just keep it as a relic of curiosity. Um, then she accuses, of course, accuses humans of bringing evil back in the world as they all accuse each other. I guess there's some validity to that accusation. Um, there's a side note here about the, 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 the races of Kryn. It's such an interesting thing. It's, it's who was awoken first, who was created first. The dwarves maintain that. I think they maintain that they were created last because reorks wanted to perfect them. So he let he, so he, he, made humans and elves first and they didn't quite work out. And he said, well, I need a people who are strong, not too tall, you know, so, so they're not clumsy and all this stuff. So they made the dwarves. I think they're the only race that claims they were made last, but it's also arrogant. The elves claim they were first because the gods love them most. Um, the good gods, that might be true, but uh, the actual first race to be born on Kryn were the ogres. And when they were formed, they weren't ugly. They're not ugly. They're not ogres as we know them. They were far more beautiful than even the elves. They were truly immortal. They were the most powerfully, most powerful magically. They were a, an amazing, gorgeous people. They were, but then as they became more and more evil, they became what we know ogres that we know, like the big brutish, you know, swinging a club, those kind of. I love that. I love that. I love that. Walking tale. around with a donkey. <laughs> Yes, basically. I mean, I, I always did love that. Um, there actually is a section of the ogres that that turned to good and stayed as they are, and they're called the Erda. I love that race. That was one of my favorite things. They're they actually are are not in this series, but they come along later. But what I'm saying is that all these races think that they're the most favored. Humans don't really think that. They actually think of themselves as the redheaded stepchild. They're like, well, yeah, but we conquer everything. So, I mean, because they, they, uh, they breed so quickly as opposed to the other races. So they take over everything and they build great monuments and all this stuff. Uh, the kinder, as we talked about the kinder and the dwarves were formed actually from the Greystone of Gargath where this, you know, it turned them into kinder and dwarves. So that's anyway, I always like that. The, the interplay, um, then they ask Raceland about the dragon orbs. And this is an interesting part. Um, his voice changes when he's telling this tale. Quote, when the second dragon wars came, the highest of my order met together in the greatest of the towers, the tr- tower of Polanthus, and created the dragon orbs. Raceland's eyes grew unfocused. His whispering voice ceased a moment. When he spoke next, it was as recounting a moment he was reliving in his mind. Even his voices changed, becoming stronger, deeper, clear. He no longer coughed. Caraman looked at him in astonishment. Those of the white robes entered the chamber at the top of the tower first. As the silver moon, Solinari rose. Then Lunatari appeared in the sky, dripping with blood, and those of the red robed robes entered finally the black disc nuatari a hole of darkness among the stars could be seen by those who sought it and the black robes walked into the chamber it was a strange moment in history when all enmity enmity between the robes was suppressed usually the the orders of sorcery will fight each other but they can't do that 
uh, in the Tower of High Sorcery. It would come but one more time in the world when the wizards joined together in the lost battles, but that time could not be foreseen. It was enough to know that for now, the great evil must be destroyed. For at last, we had seen that evil was intended on destroying all the magic of the world so that only its own would survive. Some there were among the black robes who might have tried to ally with this great power. Tana saw Raceland's eyes burn, but soon realized they would be not be the masters of it, only its slaves. And so the dragon arms were born on a night when all three moons were full in the sky. Great and powerful magic was worked that night, so powerful that few could withstand it, and they collapsed, their physical and mental strength drained. But that morning, five dragon orbs stood upon pedestals, glistening with white, dark with shadows. All but one were taken from Palanthus and carried in great peril to each of the other four towers. Here they helped the world of the Queen of Darkness. Uh, what's funny is after this, they ask him more about the dragon orbs, and he didn't remember saying it. He didn't remember telling him about it. Um, their question, Caraman, quote, I've seen it happen to race before, Caraman said in low tones, as if he becomes someone else, but it always leaves him exhausted and he never remembers. Um, then they tell of the, what happened, it's called the lost battles, when people turned against the magic users and they had to fight back. It's actually doomed to begin with. Quote, as Istar rose during the Age of Might to greater and greater glories, the king priest of Istar and his clerics became increasingly jealous of the magic user's power. The clerics no longer saw the need for magic in the world, fearing it, of course, as something they could not control. Magic users themselves, although respected, were never widely trusted, even those wearing the white robes. It was a simple matter for the priests to stir the people against the wizards. As times grew and more, more and more evil, the priests placed the blame upon the magic users. The towers of high sorcery where the magicians must pass their final grueling tests where the, where the powers of the mages rested. The towers became natural targets. Mobs attacked them, and it was, as your young friend said, for only the second time in the history of the robes came together. Um, she's tell, this is Alana telling this tale because she's telling about where Lorak got the dragon orb. Quote, when it became clear that the battle was hopeless, the wizards themselves destroyed two of the towers. The blast devastated the countryside for miles around. Only three remained, the Tower of Istar, the Tower of Palanthus, and the Tower of Weyrath. But the terrible destruction of the other two scar scars scared the king priest. He granted the wizards in the towers of Istar and Palanthus safe passage from these cities if they left the towers undamaged, but the wizards could have destroyed the two cities as the king, well knew, king priest well knew. Um... This is one of the best parts, though. Uh, the Tower of Palanthus is closed and locked. Um, nobody's been able to step into it. Tower of Wayruth is still there. It's really the only Tower of High Sorcery left. But this is the, the tale of the Tower of Palanthus. And this will finish us up because um, this is leading into the next, uh, the next big part of this story. Quote, the Wizard of the White closed the tower's slender gates of gold and locked them with a silver key. The regent stretched out his hand, eager for the key, when one of the black robes appeared in a window in one of the upper stories. The gates remained closed and the halls empty until the day when the master of both past and the present returns with power, he cried. Then the evil mage leaped out, hurling himself down at the gates. As the barbs pierced the black robes, he cast a curse upon the tower. His blood poured down on the ground. The silver and golden gates withered and twisted and turned to black. The shimmering tower of white and red faded to ice gray stone. Its black minarets crumbled to dust. The regent and the people fled in terror. To this day, no one has dared to enter the Tower of Palanthus or even approach its gates. It was after the cursing of the tower that my father brought the, silver or this, the orb to, to Sylvanesti. Uh, 